couple of summers ago, we took a good part of the summer and spent them in the Psalms. And we are going to do that again for the remainder of our <clears throat> summer together. We'll pick back up in the book of Acts when we reconvene after our kids get back in school. There's a couple of reasons why we're doing this. Number one, people are gone quite a bit in the summer, and so we want to continue our series together in the book of Acts when we get back together as an entire congregation. And secondly, the Psalms are uniquely important and instructive in helping you become a healthy disciple. As the people of God, as this particular church, we have one mission. And that mission is that we glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit here and around the world. That's the mission of this church. That's what drives us. That we will, for the glory of God, make disciples of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit here in this place and around the world. That's what drives our elders as we make decisions. That's, I think, why most of you attend this church, that you want to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, it means that you will look like your teacher, not me, but the Lord Jesus. Jesus said this to his disciples, a disciple is fully mature when he looks like his Lord, like his teacher. And so, discipleship is a lifelong process It's cradle to grave. It's not something that we do for our kids. We hope we cram a bunch of information into their heads by the time they're 18 so they can go out and deal with the wiles of the world. Discipleship is a lifelong process. It's not a class. It's not a period of time. It's it's from the beginning until the end of this mortal life. And increasingly over time, incrementally, Often, imperceptibly, we are being transformed by the Spirit of God into the image of our Creator. Paul makes this clear in his writings in places like 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that we are being transformed degree by degree, incrementally, into the glory of God. We won't become God, but we will look more like Him. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul makes it very clear that day by day we are being restored into the image of the Creator. So what does it mean to be a disciple? Well, it means to to look a lot more like our Creator. What is He like? Well, He's holy. Well, that just begs another question. What does that mean? Well, it means that He's unique. Another begged question. It means He's different than, than common things. He's different in his rationale, the way that he reasons. He's different in his volition, the things that he does. And he's different in his affections, the things that he feels, the things that he desires. And if we are going to become more and more like our Creator, we have to become more and more like Him in all these ways as well. In our rationale, the way that we think. In our volition, the things that we do with our bodies. And fundamentally with our affections, the things that we think about, the things that we ponder, the things that we treasure. And the Psalms are uniquely helpful, uniquely helpful with that third category. And often one of the great failures of the church through the centuries has been to address people merely at the point of rationale, the way that we reason, or at the point of volition, what we do with our bodies, And not at the point of affection. But God in His wisdom and in His goodness has left for us 150 psalms. Which address the inside part of us, the internal part of us, the affections. Which I think suggests to us that that God in growing us as His covenant people, growing us as disciples, wants us to be internally whole. The difficulty, of course, born into this broken world as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve is that we are not whole. 
But the process of redemption is to make us whole so that one day, whenever we are presented to the Lord Jesus as trophies of grace, we will look a lot more like Him than we did at the beginning of the process of redemption. So there is a sense to which we are saved initially. We call this justification. The legal verdict is in on us. Those of us who have trusted the Lord Jesus have passed from condemnation to no condemnation. We have been acquitted of our guilt. But there is another sense to which we are progressively being saved from what we were to what we need to become. And the Psalms are truly indispensable in helping us toward that end because the truth of the matter is the inside part of us, the often invisible part of us, that takes a lot of work. We have lots of fears. We are often driven by anxiety, gripped by the unknown that is coming around the bend. We are easily frightened. We are often sad. We are sometimes unexplainably driven to anger. We want to be happy. We want to be driven by, characterized by joy. But we struggle with this, with this jumble of emotions. But if we are like God, if we are created in the image of God, He gave us these emotions, these feelings, these affections. And increasingly, as our rationale, the way we think, and our volition, what we do with our bodies, and the inside part of us, our emotions, as these things coalesce and come together into a holy harmony, all parts working together, driven by and and, and governed by the Spirit, then we become whole over time. And the Psalms were given to help us toward that end. So we will take time over the coming weeks to spend time in the Psalms to learn how we can become more emotionally intelligent, that is to understand ourselves properly and those around us as well, but also hopefully a bit more emotionally healthy, a bit more emotionally whole. And so, toward that end, we will spend time together to begin with this summer in Psalm 121, which proclaims to us that the Lord is our keeper. This psalm does something positive, and it does something negative. And by negative, I don't mean bad, but I mean it drives something out. The positive aspect of this psalm is that it reminds us that the God of the universe, who has no limits on His power and is characterized by pure love for His people, keeps His people. And if the only one who is all-powerful with no limits on that power and characterized by pure love... If that kind of power and that kind of love are leveraged on our behalf, we don't have to be afraid in this life. The negative side of the psalm, the thing that it drives out, is that it exposes how often we look to other sources of power and love to sustain and keep us. So this psalm all at once, like most of the rest of the word, exposes where we worship false gods, where we have false confidences, and instead draws our attention to what is pure and holy and good and drives us to the only one who can keep us. There are a few of us gathered together today and then by extension, out there in the world, there are a few people who, who've never been afraid a moment in their life. These are the kind of people who seem to have the world by the tail. 
They were super successful at everything they ever did. They've never struggled with discipline. They've never hit the snooze button on their alarm. They got straight A's in school. As soon as they got out of grad school, because of course they went to grad school too, they were immediately making six figures. Their cars never break down. I mean, they've got life together. And if you meet them, they're always really happy. And whenever you frown and they look at you and say, what's wrong with you? And you look at them and say, I can't even talk to you because you're not afraid of anything. There's a few people like that in the world. They just seem to have everything together. And a few of you who are like that, thank God for you. I wish I was more like that. The rest of us struggle a lot. We can wake up in the morning and it can be, it can be great. It can be sunny. Maybe we only hit the snooze button twice. Maybe we didn't eat bacon and eggs and instead ate like mucilix or whatever, something super healthy. We got to work on time. We, we sent our wife like three nice texts. We got home and we weren't irritated with the kids. We mowed the grass. We shared the gospel with our neighbor. We didn't watch Netflix, but instead like read a book by John Owen or something like that. Like it was a super good day. It's amazing how in the turn of a moment, we can get a bad text or something like that and our world can fall apart. A lot of us wonder how we're going to make it. And we wonder if anybody is truly for us. And even if we have the gift of of some good companions, confidants, people who are truly for us and really love us, we still often wonder if God is for us and if God sees us and if God cares. Sickness does this to us. We're experiencing this right now as a church. Sickness calls into question the goodness of God. Tragedy, trial, calls into question the goodness of God. When my securities begin to to be exposed as, as brittle, for for false securities will always be brittle, they'll always be fragile. When those are exposed for what they are, and and we start sinking, then we wonder, will we make it? Our sin does this as well. Our proclivities, the things that we turn to, the things that we run to, the things that we're still struggling with years or even decades later, we we wonder, is God still going to be for us when all the dirty stuff which we know he sees, is brought into the light. When relationships evaporate, when our income is threatened, when our children are sick, we wonder, does God see and does God care? And the Psalms of Ascent, which run, as I said to you earlier this morning, from Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, are given to us in particular to remind us of what a sojourn of faith lifelong is to look like under the guardianship of a good and powerful God. For all of us are sojourning, and the sojourn is long. Israel, three times a year, would come up to Jerusalem. Now, that's geographical and it's metaphorical. It's geographical because Jerusalem was in the highlands of Israel. It was up in the hills. And wherever you came from, north, south, east, or west, you had to come up to Jerusalem. Some of the journey for some of the pilgrims would have been pretty imposing, Some of the hills that had to be climbed were somewhat threatening, arduous, even dangerous at times from from men and beasts. But it was also metaphorical. As the people dispersed from Jerusalem and went back down to where they lived, they went back down to the humdrum daily routines of life, where they left the the mountaintop, so to speak, experience of of being with their Creator together back into their villages where they would 
fight with their spouse and yell at their kids and struggle with temptation and be threatened by famine and lack of income and loss of relationship. And even though they lived a couple of thousand or even in this case 3,000 years ago, it's the same experience we have. Some of these psalms were probably written for those journeys up to Jerusalem as families and whole villages would travel up to Jerusalem for this kind of worship. Some of them were written and then employed in this way later. And so we look back to these psalms that Israel would have rehearsed together 3,000 years ago, and, and we do the same today, for, for we sojourn together. The Lord Jesus has given us this corporate entity, the church, so that we don't sojourn alone. And the sojourn is hard. This walk with Jesus over time is hard. It's characterized by moments of joy and success, and then conversely, other moments where our hearts break and we wonder if we can take another step. The human condition has always been the same to, despite technology, despite what we have that makes our lives easier. Israel was just like us. And so the psalm begins, as I've already read to you earlier today in verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? And the response of faith is this, my help comes from the Lord, Yahweh, the self-existent one, the covenant-keeping God. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So here's the idea. God's covenant people traveling to Jerusalem would have come to the highlands, to the hill country. Some of them were in pretty good shape probably. They were day laborers. They they worked all the time. They had good cardiovascular health. So when they saw the hills, it wasn't a big deal to them. They just zipped right up. And others were in less good shape. It would been harder for them to make the climb. Thieves and robbers would take advantage. Sometimes in the journey up through the highlands to Jerusalem, they would hide around the bend of a cliff and, and attack and rob people. We see this in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Sometimes there were beasts that would threaten them, flash floods. There were natural and even human threats to these worshipers as they were making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But again, the metaphor is that as we look to God, as we look to go up to Him, as we, as we look toward Him, as we, as we know we should be worshiping Him for the rest of our lives. He's who made us. He is the one who saved us. He is the one who deserves our worship. As, as we look ahead down the path, and we know it's a gradual climb, and the metaphor is we were here, and we have to eventually get here. Incremental steps of growth. That's hard. It's exhausting. We worry if, if we'll make it, some of us. Some of us wonder if, if we'll really make it, if we'll really persevere in faith. Our sin habits, our sin struggles, it, it calls that into question. Why do I still struggle with these things that I struggled with back in 1986? Why am I not better at this thing than, than I am currently? And these first four verses of the psalm tell us that the Lord, the covenant-keeping God, the self-existent one, Yahweh, the Lord, will sustain and enable our perseverance. St. Augustine, many centuries ago, prayed this prayer, Lord, enable that which you command. What does God command? God commands that we love Him with our entire being, 
mind, body, and affections. And if we're being honest, that's really hard, isn't it? Do do most of us make it through a 24-hour period without sinning? Most of us don't most days. Most of us find it hard to make it through an hour of a day without sinning. Though justified, though legally acquitted, though possessing the righteousness of Jesus, we still struggle with sin. But Augustine well understood, and the psalmist well understood, that if we are going to make this upward climb from sinful rebel initially to holy worshiper of the triune God, if that's going to be where we go, if that's going to be where we end up, we know it's going to be hard. As Josh prayed earlier, from the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. One of the great lyrics of that song is, prone to wander. I, I'm, I have the likelihood of wandering. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. It's inside of us. Israel made this journey three times a year up to Jerusalem, again, geographically and metaphorically, because they knew they had one true God. Of all the nations in the earth, They were His, and He was theirs. And the the very point of the pilgrimage is is that He was all they had. Whether they had a banner year with their crops or whether it was a year of, of desertion, God was their only resource. God was their only treasure. So they go up to worship Him. One of those festivals for which they went up was Passover. So as the, as the people went up to Jerusalem for Passover, the centuries-long reminder that God had rescued His covenant people out of slavery and made them His own, they would, they would sing this psalm together. So here's a dad and here's a mom, and I don't know how many kids they had back then, 17 or 18, And then the village would come along with them, perhaps, cousins and aunts and uncles, and they'd travel up to Jerusalem and they'd sing this psalm together. And as they approached a a grade and and would climb up into the hill country, they would would say, I lift up my eyes to the hills, and it's going to be hard going up to Jerusalem. Who's going to help us? So, So maybe the fathers would sing this first verse. It wasn't broken up into verses back then. And, and the children perhaps would respond, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. But, but this became a lesson for life when they would be back in their, in their lowland villages. As I, as I look at, at the upward climb that's required of me, who's going to help me? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Think about that. We are made of dust. Our our sins are too many to count. Our, Our strength is small. Even the most disciplined among us, our strength is small. And even if we live to be 70 or 80 or 90, it's a vapor. And yet the one who had no beginning has never depended on another for a moment and who will have no end. The one who made everything around us that we see and planets and stars at an incalculable distance. He who made all of those things, He helps us. The truth of the matter is, my brothers and sisters, a lot of us are afraid to die. I think far more of us are afraid to live. It's hard to live. It's hard to get up each morning and make daily decisions that honor God, to turn from our idols and instead to treasure God. 
It's hard whenever we're tired. It's hard whenever we're sick. It's hard whenever our, our, our faith is, is weak. But the one who has limitless power, the one who spoke the world into existence, all of his power, and the implication of this verse, all of his love and perfect harmony are leveraged together for us. How has he proven this most clearly? Let's look together, please, in Colossians chapter 1. Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, the church that he did not plant personally, but indirectly through disciples of his. He wrote to them at a time of trial. There were false teachers that were at least on the periphery of the church in Colossae, which were saying, hey, Jesus, you need him, but, but make sure you obey a bunch of laws and be a little mystical too, and if you add all these things together and get the right recipe, God will accept you. Paul writes to the Colossian believers to say to them, you have Christ, he's all you need. Why is he all we need? Because of who he is. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 proclaim this to us. This was probably an early hymn in the first church, not unlike the hymn that we are reading together from Psalm 121. This is what Paul says, Colossians 1.15 he, this is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This means first in rank in the original language. He's the leader. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Who is the one that we look to to sustain us in this upward, difficult sojourn of faith? As we, as we move up in worship, as we make the journey, look in verse 18, he is the head of the body, his body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 says something pretty similar. He is the radiance of God, the one through whom God made all things. According to Paul, he is not only this, he is the one who died for his people to reconcile them to God. How has Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, self-existing God, how has He proven Himself most faithful and beneficent good to His people? By giving us Himself. This is what John says in John chapter 1, Jesus came down literally to tabernacle with us, to set up His tent among us, to, to dwell with us to reveal God to us and to bring us back to God, to give us the right to become sons and daughters of God. So Psalm 121 suggests to us that our help does come from the Lord who made all things. And, and who is that? God made all things through His Son, the Lord Jesus, who is also the one who died for us, which brings together all at once power, and love. So where does our help come from along this difficult, treacherous sojourn? Our help comes from God. Our help comes from the Lord Jesus, in whom all the fullness of deity dwells, who not only has limitless power, but unfathomable love. What will He do for us? Verse 3, He will not let our foot be moved. 
He who keeps us will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel and the church will neither slumber nor sleep. My children know that on occasions, on Saturdays, I get to sleep in. Now, this doesn't happen a lot. We have baseball games and soccer games and work and yard work and all kinds of other stuff which, which often make that impossible. My alarm went off at the beautiful hour of 5.30 a.m. yesterday so I could go pump water out of baseball field. But on occasions on Saturdays, we, and by we I mean me, I get to sleep in. But my children, all four of them, which often seems like there's a hundred of them, they want things from me. They want to know if they can do things. They want to go places. They want me to do things for them, which is great because I'm their father. But their mother, on those rare occasions when I do get to sleep on Saturdays, she keeps them out of the room. The door stays shut. Now, as soon as I do get up, it's amazing because it's like a bunch of whack-a-moles. You ever played whack-a-mole like in an arcade where you take that like rubber hammer and you bang the, the mole on the head and another one pops out of another hole? Like when I do finally get up on those rare occasions on Saturdays, they just come out of the woodwork and then it does feel like there's a hundred of them. But they, they know when I'm slumbering and sleeping, it's not a good time to mess with dad. The idea here is that, that we wonder if we have access to the one who can actually help us. Because we do need stuff. We, we need help. If we're going to make it along this difficult sojourn, we need help. It's kind of silly to say that, that God would need sleep, that he would slumber. It, it's, it's, it's not this notion that, that deities have to, to take a rest or a vacation. As you come to the end of the creative order in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, it says that God rested on the seventh day. It's not because he was worn out. He wasn't fatigued. We use human ideas, human language to, to help us understand God. And what the writer of this psalm is saying is, God is never inaccessible. It is totally appropriate and good. The men's study that Michael has recently led has been very helpful in, in developing deliberate times of prayer at some point in your day whether it be in the morning or the evening. But equally as important is what Paul suggests in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that we should be praying without ceasing. Another section that we studied recently in our men's study. So there should be times where we get into our prayer closet and pray. And there are, of course, also truths that we should be praying all the time. Because trouble doesn't come at expected moments, does it? Trouble comes often when we least expect it. And then we need to know, is God accessible to me? And the answer is always yes. And what will this one who is always accessible do for us? He will keep us and he won't let our foot be moved. One of the best things my parents did for me when I was growing up is they didn't just take me to, like, Kings Island. I grew up, like, 20 minutes away from Kings Island. My, my parents never once took me to Kings Island. But my parents did take me out to the mountains of Colorado and Wyoming. So this was always our, our course in our summer. My dad would save all of his vacation up, and we had one of those Airstream trailers, one of those silver trailers. And uh, we always had, a, like, a Suburban to pull it. And back then, it was really fun because you could take all the back seats out of the Suburban and, and nobody cared about child protection laws back then. Like, no, nobody in my family ever had a child safety seat. Now we spend like $3,000 on European ones that have like 12-point harnesses. We would pile in the back of the Suburban, take all the seats out and just lay down and play with toys. And we would, we would head out to Colorado and, and set up camp wherever we wanted because back then park rangers didn't care. And, and then we would just hike. That was what we did every day. And my dad would make sticks for us out of willow trees, and, and we would make forts and climb mountains. But my, my dad taught us not only all those things, but also how to hike. So we would often go up pretty steep inclines up these mountains. And, and he taught us when we were little that to, to come down a mountain properly, whenever there's scree, which is little rocks which 
are loose underfoot, that you had to go sideways. And the reason for that is if you go forward, your, your body weight tips forward, and you'll fall and you'll bust your nose. So we learned by, by instruction and by trial that that's how you did it. So you'd kind of you'd run and jump sideways, and then you'd catch yourself, and then you'd run and you'd jump sideways again, and you'd get down the hill pretty safely. Not too long ago, I was with my brothers, because now they're older, we still like going out to the mountains, my brothers and, and my family as well. My brothers and I were, were hiking a pretty tall mountain out there, and we went down the, the last side of the last mountain, and it was full of scree. And, and I remember that lesson from my father in my late 30s. I know what it's like to be on loose footing. Most of us do. Most of us feel unstable pretty often. Now, that's frustrating, but it's also a gift. That means that sickness can be a gift. It means that poverty can be a gift. It, it means that, that not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow can be a gift. Because in those moments when we're off our equilibrium, when we feel a little bit unsteady and unstable, God exposes our tendency to trust ourselves, and instead, over time, shows us that we can't, that we, we have limited resources, we have limited intellect and limited foresight and limited strength. And instead, He turns us to Himself because He's limitless in all of those areas and more. So next time, maybe it'll be this afternoon, you feel off your equilibrium, rather than detesting it and being angry about it, turn your eyes to the Lord who is for you, He who is always accessible to you, and He will sustain you. He will help you. This psalm does not suggest to us that there will never be trouble. That's not what the psalmist is saying here. The psalmist is taking a broad view of life, a bird's eye view of life. The difficulty for us is whenever we're we're in the, the midst of a particular trial, our perspective, our vantage point is so limited this is one of the other blessings of, of going out to the mountains. Whitney and I decided some years back that we needed to find a mutual hobby. And so we ended up on backpacking. That's what we've done together. It's been, we have wonderful stories. It's been, it's been really fun. Um, a couple of years ago, we didn't backpack this particular mountain, but the tallest mountain in the lower 48, we, we ascended. It's just it's a hard hike. We weren't like in ropes and hard hats and stuff like that. And when you get up to the top of this mountain, it's outside of Leadville, Colorado, you can see for miles and miles and miles. But it's really interesting. When you're on your way up, sometimes you can only see like 20 feet ahead because you have to make a turn around a big tree or a big rock. And it can be really hard. When you finally get up to the top, you can see from a vantage point the whole thing, where you came from. And that's life, and and that's what Psalm 121 is saying to us. It's not saying you'll never struggle. It doesn't mean that you'll never slip a bit. In the verses that we'll rehearse together in just a few moments, it doesn't mean we'll never be experiencing the heat of the day or the the terrors of night. It doesn't mean that we'll never face evil, but it means that, that occasionally when we can get a vantage point and look back on the big story, on the big picture... that our estimate of the whole thing is God is faithful, God is good. The Lord will sustain and enable our perseverance. Now, again, today, recently, you may feel like you are slipping. But if you are a child of God through the Lord Jesus, the estimate of the whole thing is grace. And verses 5 through 8 proclaim this as well. The Lord will not only sustain and enable our perseverance, helping us to the end, helping us to hang on, but the Lord will protect us from all that threatens us along our sojourn. So he's already said in verse 3 and verse 4 that God keeps us. And now again in verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. In case you missed it, he says it again. There's repetition for the sake of emphasis. The Lord is the one who keeps you. 
The Lord is your shade on your right hand, and the sun will not strike us by day nor the moon by night. Now, again, this is big picture. This is, this is an estimate of the, of the whole journey. I wonder, perhaps, if this was written by an older person, not a person in their 20s or 30s or 40s, but a, but a person who had decades of experience with their covenant God, who could look back and say, I can remember the hard moments. I can remember when, whenever it felt like my foot was slipping. I can remember when the heat of the day struck me. I can remember when the terrors of night exposed just how fragile my existence is. But on balance, big picture, God has been faithful. We have felt, most of us, that, that intense heat of the day. I remember several years ago, a few of us went down to the Dominican Republic to, to do a mission trip. And part of that mission trip, in fact, the main reason we went was to build a wall. They had like a 40-acre compound, and to secure it for themselves legally from the Dominican government, they had to put a wall around it. But rather than just like putting up some fence posts and some barbed wire, they decided that they were going to seek support to raise money to put a, a block wall around it, which was a good idea because later on they were going to build a bunch of buildings there and they needed to keep the, the place safe. And so that's what we did. So we, we built a wall. And the Dominican Republic is much closer to the equator than central Ohio, of course. And we went in the middle of the hot season, and it was, it was horrible. A couple of us got really sick. Um, and it, I remember just being crazy hot. Uh, the locals who, who lived there, who had been hired to help us, I'm sure were laughing at us because we were just fainting. Like, we sit behind desks all the time and eat, like, you know, fast food. And, and these people who are much poorer than us could, like, work all day long in the intense heat and just laugh at us. But, but I remember just being incredibly hot. And the missionary there who was in charge of the whole thing kept bringing us drinks and and. I've never been so hot in my entire life. It's like, you know, I just want to quit. Life can be like that, where it's almost unbearable, and we don't feel like we have one more ounce of strength to continue. The metaphor of the heat of the day is then coupled with the terror of the, of the nighttime in verse 6. These are the things that go bump in the night, the things that we can't see, the things that frighten us. You ever had that moment at night whenever you wake up and there's a pair of eyes staring at you? Your kids, and, and they say, I think there's a monster under my bed. And, and you're like half groggy and like half out of it wondering if this is a dream. And you say to them, of course there's not. This is irrational. And, and you get up out of bed trying to restrain your anger that your few fitful hours of sleep have been threatened and you tuck them back in and you tell them everything's going to be fine and you make sure the night light's turned on and the turtle which puts the stars up on the sky and their music and their like 17 little stuffed animals and you tuck them in and assure them of your love and everything's fine and by that way Brinks is also monitoring the house there's nothing to worry about. But as adults, we have these same fears, things that we can't see, things which seem irrational to us if, if we were sitting down with a counselor. But in the daily throes of the moments of life, we're scared of a lot of things, things that we can't see, things that threaten us. The Jewish people understood this. For many of them, it would have been a long journey to get to Jerusalem. They would have had to walk in the heat of the day and then set up camp at night. This is the same land where David killed a lion and David killed a bear. This was an unforgiving land. And of course, metaphorically, it's an unforgiving journey that we are all on. And no matter how much we try to insulate ourselves from any threats, there are threats all around us. The threats are real. They can be harmful. But again, on balance big picture, the song proclaims to us that in the grand scheme of life, as we look back upon our sojourn, the Lord proves Himself faithful. That the things that we think might be the last straw, 
the final blow, the coup de grace, the thing that will undo us, that God won't let it be. God won't let your sin have the final word. God will not let the sin of others have the final word. God will not let the sin of this world and its system and all of its brokenness have the final word. The word of God who came down to us to rescue us, that is God's final word to us. Love, covenant faithfulness, grace, promises that will never fail. The Lord will protect us from all that threatens us along our sojourn. He will keep us, verse 7, from all evil. He will keep our life. The Lord, as the psalmist wraps it up, will keep your going out and your coming in, your day-to-day motions, from this time forth and forevermore. None of us know how much longer we have in, in this life. For some, it, it may be decades. For others, it may be days. But for all of us, our future is certain. This means that for those of us who belong to this covenant-keeping God, there is no fear in death, and there is no fear in life. We can live and we can die with full confidence, knowing that the God who has kept His people for millennia and never dozed off for a moment and was never blind to any danger that came into our path and was never unaware of any threat to our sojourn, this God will keep us from this time forth and forevermore. This psalm was good for Israel. For as they went up to deliberately worship the one true God these three times a year in their pilgrimage, they rehearsed to themselves what was true. And what was true on the mountain was true in the lowlands. And what is true here together today as we are gathered as God's people to to rehearse the truth, it'll be true when you drive home today. Then it'll be true on Tuesday in September, in 2019, and into eternity, it'll always be true. The Lord will sustain and enable our perseverance, and the Lord will protect us from all that threatens us along our sojourn. How do we respond to this? First of all, with daily renewal. Why? Because we are quick to forget the Lord and turn to false messiahs. This is what we do. When the threats come, when we, when we feel unsteady, when the equilibrium is thrown off, when the threats are real and the fears rise, we turn to other things to sustain us. We do this with our relationships. We, we do this with our, our hobbies. We do this with our jobs. We do this with our money. We do this with politics. We we do this all the time. We stack up for ourselves false messiahs, seeking salvation from them. And what God does for us is shows us that all those messiahs are just masquerading. They're not real. So how do we come back to the truth? Through daily renewal. We, We read the truth. This makes the Bible much more than a chore. We, we go there to find treasure. We go there to find promises. We go there to sustain our weak faith. And then we, we pray it back to Him. We pray Psalm 121 back to God. We, we've, we've mined the depths for truth today, and we pray it back to God. God, I, I look ahead. I look ahead as my, as my sojourn is rising and, and the way is treacherous. Who's going to help me? You say you will, 
No one else can. You made all things, and your power and your love are leveraged on my behalf. You have to help me, and he will. We respond with daily renewal. God talks to us. We talk back to him. And then secondly and lastly, we respond with mutual affirmation and encouragement. The Lord Jesus gave us the church as a means of grace. You will not make it on your own. You will be picked off if you try to live an individual life. It won't work. You're not strong enough. You're not good enough. So the Lord puts us together in His infinite wisdom and goodness. We affirm one another in the upward trajectory that we see in one another. So as you see your brother or your sister or your spouse or your children or your grandchildren, as you see them growing in grace and confidence in the Lord, point that out to them, tell them. There is nothing more encouraging to a Christian in whom the Spirit of God dwells to say to them, I see the Spirit changing you and I want you to be encouraged. Not only this, you tell them you belong to the Lord Jesus, brother. You are His. He will not let you go. You are a child of the one true God who made all things and who loves you with an unfathomable love. You're fine. You'll be fine. We say these things to each other. And if you think, well, it's too awkward for me to say those things to each other, get over yourselves. One of the most powerful things that you can do for each other is speak words of grace, and then you encourage each other. When you see someone that you love faltering, they have weak legs and and their heads are drooping, you call them to persevere, but not by their own strength. You call them to look to the one who will help them. So we're not alone in this sojourn. Thank God for that. He is with us and we are together. So where does our help come from? Who will keep us? The Lord will keep us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, now...